0: We are back. There's so many things I want to talk about. I got a pile in front of me, about an inch thick, as usual. But I need to, I think, instead pick up where I left off at the top of the hour, talking about uh, The First Casualty, Philip Knightley's tremendously good book about, well, it's about war reporting, but it's also about the media and it's also about espionage and it's also about, you know, power players that run the world and how they all interact and um, I think I'm just going to grab the book and do kind of a book report for 10 or 12 minutes and just pull some excerpts out of it that I think will surprise you. They surprise me. I'm going to concern myself today with the first two-thirds of the book, mainly because I've only read the first two-thirds of the book, and it's still blown my socks off. The full title of the book is The First Casualty from the Crimea to Vietnam, the war correspondent as hero, propagandist, and myth-maker. And we should note at the onset that the title of the book, The First Casualty, comes from a famous quote by California Senator Hiram Johnson, who said in 1917 as the U.S. was debating whether to get involved in World War I: quote, The first casualty when war comes is truth, unquote. This book illustrates how true that is. Knightley's first chapter deals with the Crimean War, 1854 to 1856 because it marked the first time that what we would recognize today as a war correspondent came into existence. This was directly related to the fact that telegraph lines now made it possible for news to be reported instantaneously and sent across great distances. Knightley starts off by citing a man named William Howard Russell, who was, according to his epitaph, the first and the greatest war correspondent. Knightley says the greatest is open to dispute, and he was not the first. That title probably belongs to the morning postman, G.L. Grinnison. But William Howard Russell's coverage of the Crimean War marked the beginning of an organized effort to report a war to the civilian population at home, using the services of a civilian reporter. This was an immense leap in journalism, so it's appropriate to begin with Russell. Russell was, in fact, the reporter who informed the folks back home about the charge of the Light Brigade, which was in reality a colossal military blunder. The truth is, it's just not a good strategy to lead a cavalry charge into cannon fire, no matter how stirring a poem it may later lead to. Now, the establishment learned early on through the reporting of people like Russell and others that, you know, when you actually got real information out of an area, this could have a powerful effect on the folks back home and lead the government to have to make changes. Now, it turned out in the case of the Crimean War, reporting back home on how bad the conditions were, for example, the wounded, led to Florence Nightingale, a nurse of professional skill, to go over there and try and improve matters. Out of the reporting came some reforms. Out of the criticism of the leadership of the army, a recall was made of Lord Raglan, And to quote from Knightley, at this stage, someone in the establishment, possibly Prince Albert, realized that to restore public confidence in the conduct of the war, some form of counter propaganda was necessary. And what better form could there be than the newly discovered medium that never lied, the camera? So it was that in 1855, cameramen were sent to Crimea to document what was going on over there. Noted Knightley, this set about establishing an axiom that still stands good, although in most cases the camera does not lie directly. It can lie brilliantly in omission. Photographs taken by a Roger Fenton were technically excellent. They portrayed a war where everything looks ship-shape and everyone's happy. They show well-dressed officers and men eating, drinking, or smoking. But upon arriving at the scene of the fatal light brigade charge, Fenton did not bother to unpack his camera. Although he noted, quote, "We came upon many skeletons half-buried. One was lying as if he'd raised himself up on an elbow." the bare skull sticking up with still enough flesh left in the muscles to prevent it from falling from the shoulders. Another man's hands and feet were out of the ground, shoes on the feet and the flesh gone. Fenton knew what sort of photograph he should take, and this was not one of them. Fifty years after the Crimean War, one of Russell's uh, colleagues wrote, I cannot help thinking that the appearance of the special correspondent in the Crimea led to a real awakening of the official mind. It brought home to the War Office the fact that the public had something to say about the conduct of wars and that they were not the concern exclusively of sovereigns and statesmen. But as time would go on, the sovereigns and statesmen, as it were, learned very quickly that you better rein in these correspondents and control what the public reads from them. During the American Civil War, every effort was made to control the correspondents which were apparently a pretty sorry lot on both sides. But the correspondents still wield a fair amount of power. Interesting anecdote cited in the book. It was noted that generals in the U.S., generals in the Union Army hated the correspondents and did its best to get rid of them. General George Meade objected to the way he was treated in a dispatch filed by Edward Crapsy of the Philadelphia Inquiry. He ordered Crapsy to be expelled by the Army. The unfortunate correspondent was placed backwards on an old horse, a placard marked Libeler of the Press was tied to his chest, and he was paraded through the army to the tune of The Rogue's March. Meade later relented and said he had realized on reflection that the punishment was unnecessarily severe. But by that time, Crabsey's colleagues had gotten together and decided that Meade's name would never be mentioned in a dispatch again. It was a boycott so effective that some claim it was a major factor in the failure of the politically ambitious George Meade to become president of the United States. I gather it must have been pretty effective because, dear listener, did you know who the general was that defeated Lee at Gettysburg? Well, in case you didn't, it was George Meade. Again, said nightly there were few good correspondents. He said isolated pieces of reporting showed that some correspondents, unlike the majority, saw the futile, bloody side of the war... And were disgusted by it. Knightley noted that in the South, the only outstanding correspondent was Peter Alexander, a lawyer from Georgia who had opposed disruption of the Union, but remained loyal to the South when the break occurred. Alexander was reliable, accurate, and honest. But said Knightley, the coverage of the Civil War by American correspondents left a lot to be desired. But it was immeasurably better than the corrupt and distorted picture of the war presented by the British press, particularly by its leading newspaper, The Times. Said Philip Knightley, the ruling class in Britain had nurtured a barely concealed hatred of America and her democratic institutions and now dearly desired their downfall. If the American experiment in democracy could be shown to have failed, demands for greater democracy in Britain could be kept from becoming an issue. Britain's interests in the war were very strong. At one stage, it appeared highly likely that she would actually intervene. The American general Winfield Scott, in Paris on a propaganda mission for Lincoln, had to return to New York to prepare for its defense against a British invasion. Lincoln realized from the beginning that the favor or disfavor of foreign nations, particularly English favor, could have considerable influence on the outcome of the war. The South, at first without the means of making a single gun, realized it would have to rely on Britain for arms, and also considered correctly that there was a good chance of bringing Britain into the war on the Confederate side. So both North and South mounted propaganda campaigns in Britain aimed at influencing opinion. It's noted that the London Times prepared for the war by sending William Howard Russell to America. His name was well known in America, and when he arrived, he dined with Lincoln and met other Northern leaders who put the Union case to him. He then went off for a tour of the South, where a first-hand study of the slave market disgusted him. The outbreak of war thus found him deeply attached to the Union cause and with a high opinion of Lincoln's motives. But as a seasoned war reporter, he had to report the first engagement at Bull Run the way he saw it. Early reports in America had been of a northern advance, and the New York newspapers carried their stories of a great victory. When William Howard Russell's report appeared in the Times and was relayed back to New York, American readers learned from it that their troops had fled in a disgraceful rout. The nation, shocked, went into a period of gloom and apprehension during which the easiest targets to blame was Russell. Fury against him became so great that he was advised to seek protection within the walls of the British Embassy. This had convinced the Times that its low opinion of the North was justified. It should be realized that some in the financial community in America realized the value of a correspondent in quite a different way. And some reporters got swept up in stock exchange manipulations using their knowledge of forthcoming legislation or the sway of a battle to tip off influential financiers. Allow me to assure you that I will make you a pile, wrote one New York financier to a correspondent in Washington, if you can get me the news in advance when the market is not excited by the same news. You know, when I read that part of Knightley's book, I just pondered how much of the fixation we see even in today's news about some stupid item like what the Greeks are doing has to do with moving the herd in a certain direction and those who want to promote the news to move the herd, knowing that they can move the herd, can reliably make a pile, even today. yet, in all the reporting that went on, both in America and Britain, it seems that, well, a lot of times the great issues, which we we think of as being involved in the Civil War, kind of got missed. Knightley says there was not a single British war correspondent who saw the great forces at work in the American Civil War and who tried to convey them to the readers. Said nightly, due in no small way to the Times and its correspondence, the British public received a biased, inaccurate impression of the Civil War. And the anger that this created in the American government caused long lasting mistrust between the two nations. Nightley goes on in a chapter about the, the golden age of uh, the war correspondent, 1865 to 1914, where in many cases the wars being reported on involved small, helpless nations and peoples. But he cites one example of reporting actually making a huge difference. In fact, the work of a Januarius Aloysius McGann, an American of Irish extraction, became directly responsible for a war and eventually the independence of Bulgaria. In 1876, reports began to reach Constantinople of terrible atrocities by Turkish troops in southern Bulgaria against the Christian population. The London Daily News commissioned McGann to go to southern Bulgaria and try and find out the truth. Said Knightley, it's difficult to overestimate the influence of McGann's reports, the accuracy of which was confirmed by investigation years later when passions had cooled. Over 12,000 men, women, and children had been killed by the Kurds and troops let loose by the Turkish rulers to crush the Bulgarian revolt. McGann interviewed hundreds of survivors and clearly was deeply moved by what he saw. McGann's stories caused worldwide indignation against the Turks. Russia decided that his disclosures justified a war on April 29, 1877, began hostilities with Turkey. Sadly for McGann, a few months after he reached Constantinople, following the Turkish surrender, he fell ill of typhus, and within a week he was dead. The Bulgarians considered he'd played a crucial role in the birth of their nation, and they commemorated his death for years afterward with an annual mass. And I don't think I'm going to stop before I delve too deeply into the First World War, because, well, I could do a whole show on this, I think. But I think I need to devote two or three minutes before we stop. We would do well to quote from Ernest Hemingway, who said, The last war during the years of 1915, 1916, 1917 was the most colossal, murderous, mismanaged butchery that has ever taken place on earth. Any writer who said otherwise lied. So the writers either wrote propaganda, shut up, or fought. Knightley describes how early on, quote, when the generals commanding larger armies than the world had ever seen before could find no way to use them except as fodder for the machine guns, a mood of disillusion with the pointlessness of it all set in. To enable the war to go on, and we're talking about 1914, the people had to be steeled for further sacrifices, and this could not be done if the full story of what was happening on the Western Front was known. And so began a great conspiracy more deliberate lies were told than in any other period of history, and the whole apparatus of the state went into action to suppress the truth. In Britain, under the Defense of the Realm Act, a system of censorship was created so severe that its legacy lingers today. The willingness of newspaper proprietors to accept this control and their cooperation in disseminating propaganda brought them the reward of social rank and political power, but it also undermined public faith in the press. Statements, I think, which are true today. It should be noted, as Knightley does, that Britain, by the end of the war, had created a propaganda organization that became the model on which Goebbels based that of the Germans 20 years later. The war was made to appear as one of defense against a menacing aggressor. The Kaiser was painted as a beast in human form. And by the way, on the other side of the English channel, the Bureau de la Presse, in France, which controlled the war news, had been financed at the outbreak of the war with 20 million gold francs from secret service funds. Again, showing that fine line between espionage and the press, one which I would say is still very much in place today. Let me take one more time to plug that fantastic 1976 article by Carl Bernstein titled, The CIA and the Media. Anyway, the book talks about how how atrocity stories were generally manufactured. Some were real, but many were manufactured and used to whip up a hatred for the Germans and an enthusiasm for the war. And uh, I think we'll just talk more about that on next week's show and probably the week after that, because there's a lot here. All right, let's come up to the present time here. That book mentions how uh, during the Civil War, some of the atrocities were not mentioned like that episode where Nathan Bedford Forrest went in and found a bunch of black soldiers fighting for the Union and killed them all, rather than take them prisoners. Let us note that according to vocative.com, at least 188 public schools in the U.S. are named for Confederate leaders. 78 of those public schools are named for Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Another 11 are named for Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And seven for Nathan Bedford Forrest, the aforementioned leader who was a Confederate general, and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, that's a guy you want to name your school after. Why he's part of the Southern tradition. It's not about about the Negro at all. We just wanted to insist upon states' rights, which included, in this case, the right to own Negro slaves. Speaking of slaves, what about wage slaves? (laughs) How about the fact that uh, Jeb Bush has said that, you know, Americans should work more. Evidently, when discussing his improbable plan to deliver a 4% GDP growth each year, Jeb Bush said that uh, too many Americans are are working at part-time jobs. He said people need to work longer hours and through their productive gains, gain more income for their families. Brian Butler, writing in the NewRepublic.com, said what that means when you examine Bush's past statements and orthodox conservative economic views is that even people who prefer to work 25 or 30 hours a week should be prodded by policy into full-time jobs. Paul Krugman in the New York Times said, despite his moderate image, Jeb Bush stands firmly with conservatives in blaming an anemic recovery on workers, not employers. But in this no-vacation nation, Americans put in more hours than their counterparts in just about every other wealthy country, clocking an unofficial 47 hours a week, according to a 2014 Gallup poll. And apparently it's not just some Americans who are lazing around. Evidently, some ants do too. According to New Scientist magazine, Daniel Charbonneau at the University of Arizona has said that, well, anyone who's ever studied social insects has noticed that, well, half of them are standing around doing nothing. But he notes that no one knew if the ants were consistently inactive or merely taking a break. So, his team studied 250 workers from five colonies of Temnothorax regulatus, a type of ant, we presume, and found almost half did no job. Are they just freeloaders? Charbonneau hopes to find out. They could be backup workers or militia. They could be live feed stations or information hubs, or perhaps the very young or the very old. Charbonneau said these hypotheses aren't exclusive, so many things could be happening at once. And yes, we await his findings about lazy answers as eagerly as you, dear listener. But frankly, we need to take a break, so let's do that. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. ever, and Sunday pass on by. I'll be working here forever, at least until I die. Cause I'm working for a living